Quick note that the following episode of Canada Land may contain subject matter and language that some people will find offensive. This episode is brought to you by our friends over at CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. They are running their ninth annual summer festival right now, Event Tide, every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Head to Centennial Square in Victoria to hear musicians from all kinds of genres. And if you're not in Victoria, you can catch this all on CFUV's YouTube channel. You can find out more at eventtidevictoria.com. That's eventtidevictoria.com. Or just search Event Tide Music Series on Facebook. I'm in the problems business. That's what we do here. We look for problems, things that are broken, things that are bad, and then we tell you about them. If things are working well. Uh, if there is no problem, then there probably isn't a news story. There is some talk these days about solutions journalism, news stories that don't just tell you what's wrong, but what we can do to make it all right. I am skeptical of this solutions journalism. Um, skeptical is sort of what we're trained to be in the problems business. You can call me old school. I've always thought that we do our jobs best when we just stick to the problems part and tell you what's broken and let somebody else try to fix it. Today's episode is about somebody else who tries to fix it. Cindy Blackstock observed racism her whole life. She worked with indigenous kids in the child welfare system. She saw that it was broken and then she went about fixing it. This is the story about how she became one of the greatest warriors for indigenous rights. That's right, we're taking a vacation from problems for a week. Our contributing editor, Danielle Paradis, has the story for you in a moment. Wait for it. It felt like I was screaming into silence, is the way that I describe it. You know, I don't think I appreciated how normalized the racial discrimination against First Nations children was. And indeed, the, how the propaganda by the government had really led large swaths of the public, and indeed even people in government, to believe that the problem wasn't that these children and their families were getting less in public services across the board. The stereotype said that the problem was that the First Nations weren't using the money properly and that they were the problem. And that's what the issue to be solved. That's what I kept on confronting every time when I would scream into silence. And even within the child rights community, it felt so interesting to me that there was, I'd be in circles and we had a dialogue about important issues like national childcare, which is finally coming to fruition. But I would talk about the fact that we have children who don't even have clean drinking water. And there would be this awkward silence. And then somebody in the group would say, well, yes, that's important consideration. And we'll put it into the child care plan. Like that, it was just kind of like this uncomfortable moment where no one knew how to, how to engage even in a conversation when it was starting. Cindy Blackstock is only 58 years old, but she's been in the public eye for so long, it feels more like she's been around for many lifetimes. Cindy is a social worker and a member of the Gixan First Nation. 
She is best known as the executive director of the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society of Canada. She was also the driving force behind the biggest settlement ever paid out by the Canadian government. Some $20 billion paid to First Nations children and families harmed by chronic underfunding of the child welfare system. And the fight all started in 2007, when Cindy complained to the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal alongside the Assembly of First Nations, or AFN, about unequal funding for First Nations children. Cindy called the court case a last resort, as her organization, the Caring Society, and AFN had worked with the federal government and First Nations child welfare experts for 10 years before filing the complaint. They had produced reports with the government on ways to keep First Nations children with their families. Money has always been a key issue here, not just on the lack of money spent on First Nations children in foster care, which is chronically underfunded according to the government's own Auditor General, Amnesty International, and the Assembly of First Nations. The larger problem, however, is the lack of funding given to Indigenous communities at all. In January 2022, three First Nations children died in a house fire at Sandy Lake First Nation. Community officials connect the deaths to woefully insufficient fire and emergency services, saying that a lack of adequate water lines and infrastructure prevented the use of fire hydrants to put out the fire. The first win for Cindy's organization came in 2016 when the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal found that the Canadian government was racially discriminating against 165,000 First Nations children who had been brought through the system over the course of decades. It wasn't until this past January that the federal government finally reached a settlement agreement and put a number on this injustice. It was a $20 billion agreement to compensate kids and their families. Cindy Blackstock's response this July was that her first priority is to ensure that First Nations children and families get the $40,000 they have already won at the Human Rights Tribunal. The deal would pay to children on reserves who were unnecessarily removed from their homes between April 1st, 1991 and March 31st, 2022. Her fight for equity began over 30 years ago as a young woman looking for a way to pay for school. In that time, she has weathered government surveillance and brought about Jordan's principle. Well, I worked, um, and this was in northern BC, and uh, this is another one of the myths, right? The status Indian folks get a free education. Well, I did. there was no money for me, so even though I'm status, so I was working three jobs. And one of the jobs that came open was working in this group home. I didn't know much about what that would be. Uh, but when I got there, I saw young people from an age of about 12 to 16 who had been removed from their families and were being put into this group home as a temporary placement until something else happened. And what struck me was that many of the reasons that they were being placed, I had to ask myself, now, I was a parent and I was in a community without water and I had black mold housing and I had no money to recover from the trauma residential school in terms of services. How would that affect my care of my kids? Like how much control do these parents actually have over this? What can they actually change? 
right? Because the Child Welfare codifies this structural discrimination as a parental deficit. And I'm all about holding people's feet to the fire for things that they should change for children. I'm not letting people off the hook. But too often what we do is we take our failures of correcting these egregious injustices and say that, the you know, because we don't want to deal with the egregious injustice, we're going to say you're the problem and we're going to try and patch you up. And that just struck me as wrong, right? And I saw the life of young people in foster care. And even when they were in really good placements, it is a very difficult and challenging life, as you well know. So how did Cindy Blackstock become this iconic figure in the fight for Indigenous justice? In a CBC interview with Peter Mansbridge, she talks about how growing up in the 1960s, she noticed that in Canada, Indigenous people were considered less than everyone else. Was there one moment that you can point to that says, that's what helped me focus my mind on the issues that matter? I grew up in the Huckleberry Fields in northern British Columbia in the 1960s, Peter. And I saw racism all around me. I didn't have words for it back then. I just saw that First Nations people were seen to be lesser than everybody else. She watched the civil rights movement in the U.S. and contrasted it with the way Canada declared itself to be generous to First Nations people. She says that as a young kid, she began to internalize that there was something wrong with being First Nations. Her fight to raise awareness is literally a matter of life and death. As Cindy herself says, when the headlines die, so do the children. What does she mean by that? She's talking about over a hundred year legacy of neglect of First Nations children. Well, today uh, we're talking in 2022, a hundred years ago, in 1922, uh, just a few blocks away from where I'm speaking to you now in Ottawa, Dr. Peter Henderson Bryce published a manuscript called A National Crime. He was the chief medical health inspector in the Indian Department in 1907 and had found that Canada's unequal health care funding and all of the terrible health practices in the schools, including uh, malnutrition, poor sanitation, poor ventilation. All of these things were creating what he called veritable hotbeds of disease, resulting in close to 50% of the children dying with every three years. So he brought back these solutions to fix this, like give them the proper health care funding, stop these terrible health practices. You could save these kids' lives, Government of Canada. That would have been Prime Minister Laurier. And the Government of Canada chose not to do it. And he would not be silent. He kept on speaking out. And so his report was leaked to newspapers. Back in 1907, headlines, they're dying like flies, absolute inattention to bare necessities of health. Throughout national papers across the country, people reading it actually felt back then that Canada's behavior could be criminal. And yet it captured the Canadian moral consciousness. But when the headlines died, Canada kept on doing nothing. When Bryce, out of frustration in 1922, publishes a national crime, we see another burst. And the headlines die, and so do the children. And when we filed this human rights case back in 2007 with the Assembly of First Nations, there were headlines about the inequality, and then there was nothing. And sadly, in the next close to a decade, where Canada fought it on legal technicalities, not only did some children die in ways that were linked to this inequality, 
Others were denied a proper childhood and families were denied an equitable chance to grow up safely together because services to recover from multi-generational trauma to prevent children from going into care were completely absent on the federal system. They weren't paying for any of that. The inequalities were huge and they knew it. That's the other thing. The federal government knows in all of these cases, we're talking about Dr. Bryce or we're talking about the inequalities that fed this case. They knew it. They knew they were underfunding. They didn't disagree with that. They also realized the harms were happening to children and the deaths. They agreed with that. They just chose not to do it. And they were able to keep that choice as long as people were looking the other way. Where all these things come together is in the whole underpinning of the colonialism, which is a savage and civilized dichotomy. And that's where you dehumanize First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples. And that dehumanization legitimizes immoral behavior by people who proclaim themselves to be superior. And that allows for dispossession of land, dispossession of resources, dispossession of culture, language, and children. That's the common theme. But it does create all of these hardships across the board. And too often we just focus on the symptom without really going to the cause of the problem, which is this racism that has been enfranchised into the Canadian state. The removal of children from their homes and their placement in residential schools has become a well-known discussion after 215 unmarked grave sites were discovered at a Kamloops Indian residential school. Since then, sites across the country have begun to unearth similar stories. Not everyone agrees on what these graves mean, but ask yourself, did you have a graveyard outside your school? In 2008, then Prime Minister Stephen Harper referred to Canada's history with residential schools as a sad chapter in our story. These objectives were based on the assumption that Aboriginal cultures and spiritual beliefs were inferior and unequal. Indeed, some saw it, as was infamously said, to kill the Indian in the child. Today, we recognize that this policy of assimilation was wrong, has caused great harm, and has no place in our country. The 1960s saw a period where the child welfare branch of the federal government took an estimated 20,000 Indigenous children from their families and placed them in foster care. The term 60 scoop was coined in the 1980s by social workers in British Columbia's Department of Social Welfare to describe their own practice of removing children. But it occurred in provinces across Canada. And these instances, both First Nations and Métis children were removed from their homes. Just a few years later, in 1985, a report known as the Kimmelman Report found that there was a systemic bias against Indigenous children and their parents. Why? Well, because when deciding what was best for the child and whether their needs were being met, it was decided using the lens of white, middle-class social workers. The report said changing the way of thinking about a child's well-being was long overdue, but given that these systems were still run by well, white, middle-class workers, there was a resistance to such a change. Coming of age in the 80s meant that Cindy became aware of this inequality surrounding her as she grew up in BC. When I was uh, working in a group home and then started to see the inequalities driving young people into care, and then I did frontline child protection for 15 years. 
And I saw it just really dramatically, right? Residential schools were still operating then. And it was just like a factory pushing all of this this family separation, the trauma. And then when we, we worked nationally on the solutions back in 1997, I was naive enough to think that, oh, they'll fix it if they know about it. And uh, clearly that didn't happen. That led to the 15 years of the case. So, The case she refers to is her human rights complaint and the subsequent settlement agreement. Cindy's fight attracted the notice of the country on and off over the years, but one of the people who paid particular attention was Eleni Obosawin, one of Canada's most distinguished documentary filmmakers and a member of the Abenaki First Nation. She was also a singer at a concert hall in New York in 1960. Well, I'm a filmmaker and uh, I do documentary films about uh, mainly uh, all our people, especially children I'm most interested in. And uh, I've covered uh, many things that happens around uh, Canada over the years, because I've been at it for 54 years. In that time, Eleni said that she has seen a lot of changes in the attention paid to First Nations and Indigenous issues. For example, she's noticing more young people than ever are using video as a way to tell stories. These two women had their worlds collide when Eleni heard about Cindy Blackstock and how she was fighting with the government to get equitable funding for First Nations children in foster care. Cindy was on her way to Norway House Cree Nation in central Manitoba. There was an important case brewing involving a young boy named Jordan River Anderson, who had spent the entirety of his life in a hospital. Well, one of the most wonderful times is Jordan's principal, of course, named after Jordan River Anderson, a little baby boy from Norway House who was uh, denied an opportunity to leave the hospital because Canada would not pay for his at-home care. If he was non-Indigenous, he would have been able to leave, and sadly, he dies in the hospital. Well, Jordan's principle is about ensuring all First Nations children get access to the public services they need when they need them. And uh, for years, that passed in the House of Commons in 2007 unanimously, and then the government never implemented it. His family, headed by his father, Ernest Anderson, and um, his sisters and brothers, they've been advocating for Jordan's principle for many years. Finally, after 2017, when the tribunal issued a non-compliance order and Canada started to implement it, there was a conference on Jordan's principle and the family was there. And I asked people, the three, 400 people who were there, I said, can you please stand if you have been touched by Jordan's principle or you know someone who did? And everyone stood. And some of the children who had received those services, tutoring, uh, services for autism, public health services, they were all standing. And the, to see the family, see that physical sign, that was huge. Alani also described this victory as a very important milestone for First Nations people. I went to Norway House, and the first time I did an interview concerning uh, Jordan at the time was in 2010 in Norway House. So then, you know, I was I was very involved in making this series of films that was very important for our history and the protection of our, our rights. 
And I, I've been um, so, you know, I've been at it for a very long time. And in the early 60s, people were telling me things like uh, saying, uh, did you know that uh, 68% of the people in jail are indigenous people? For Eleni, the narrative was very familiar. Anyone who was indigenous who dared to speak out about the issues the government afflicted on First Nations people were heavily criticized. Because of this, she wanted to record the court case. Actually, it all started in 2010 when uh, there was a campaign being done uh, to get a new school in uh, Arawapiskat at that time. And I heard about uh, the concern of Cindy in terms of children's uh, life in, in every way, especially their rights. And so I called her up, and this is how I began to cover all what was happening in court since then. So I've made, uh, about, I think, about seven films concerning the rights of our people. So this is how I watched her. Uh, she's just an incredible hero that we have in this country in terms of uh, fighting for something and uh, go to the end and uh, she knows what she's talking about and the caring is just uh, incredible. We've been filming her a lot in court and I'm always amazed of her reaction and how she's able to when often they're trying to put her down or they're trying to, you can't do that to her. Like, it's not possible. She's much too clever and a very honest person. And even when uh, people who try to, especially the government, try to put her down or try to show her as if she's not all that great, well, they never succeed. And she's just, uh, it's just amazing. Eleni released a movie called We Can't Make the Same Mistake Twice. She applied for and got permission to record the proceedings. Good morning, tribunal members. What a great honor to stand on the lands of the Algonquin Nation. This very country is named Canada. It's a gift of First Nations people to their land and to all Canadians. And it means village. But for far too long, there's been two villages in this great nation. One for all other children, and one for the First Nations children who have called this land home for thousands of years. This case, this moment, is for the children. And they really, really tried to smear Cindy. APTN reported that 189 federal employees spied on her. In 2009, Cindy Blackstock filed a complaint alleging that because of her human rights complaint, the government had attempted to retaliate against her. Section 14.1 of the Canadian Human Rights Act calls retaliation due to a complaint a discriminatory practice. The way Cindy sees it is that prior to filing the lawsuit against the federal government, she had lots of expert consulting work, but after the lawsuit was filed, it dried up. Another part of Cindy's complaint told the story of how she had once been invited by the chiefs of Ontario to attend a meeting with them and the then Minister of Indigenous and Northern Affairs, Chuck Straw. 
This is the story that is told in the pages of the Human Rights Tribunal's decision. Upon arrival at the minister's office building, Dr. Blackstock, along with the 10 to 14 other individuals accompanying Grand Chief Phillips, proceeded through security and took the elevator to the floor of the minister's office. There, they sat and waited in the reception area, outside of the meeting room. The minister's special assistant, David MacArthur, appeared and following a brief discussion with Grand Chief Phillips regarding the number of delegates, proceeded to allow the delegates to enter the meeting room one by one, greeting them individually as they went in. When it was Dr. Blackstock's turn to enter the room, Mr. MacArthur asked her to identify herself. When she did, he blocked access to the room, stating, We'll meet with you another time. I understand that you have a number of issues and we'll meet with you another time. But Cindy's complaint didn't end there. She also described how government officials were monitoring her on social media and at her in-person talks. After being barred from the meeting, she filed an FOI for records about herself under the Privacy Act. In 2014, news stories circulated about the complaint filed by Cindy Blackstock regarding the government departments surveilling her Facebook, an investigation by the Federal Privacy Commissioner, Jennifer Stodart, in 2013, found that the Department of Aboriginal Affairs had overstepped by monitoring and saving posts from Cindy's personal Facebook account. As for the complaint Cindy had made about government officials monitoring her by attending sessions where she spoke to the public, this was not found to be an invasion of privacy. Despite all of this, Cindy remains undaunted in her search for justice for First Nations children in care. She says she is motivated to keep going because she wants the kids to know that there is someone out there fighting for them, so that they know someone believes they are worth the effort. Alani says Cindy is a rare gift to have. I think uh, she's gone through a lot herself as a young person, and she worked as a social worker, and she saw all the injustice and she discovered how badly our people were treated, and she decided that she was going to do everything to change that. It's her mission. It's just incredible. I often call her for all kinds of things. I want to make sure of certain uh, things. And uh, she's teaching at McGill sometimes, and we get, try to get together. And I just, uh, I just keep discovering extraordinary quality that she has all the time. We're very lucky to have a person like that in our world. And there's a, a bonus that we made for some of the films in court that we shot in these last 10 years, and it's called Retaliation. And it's a bonus, and it's only Cindy. It is, wait till you see it, it's just so incredible. She's so unbelievable. Even if I would try to make a fiction like that, it would never be this good. It was just uh, her expression and how she answered, and she's so smart. And it's hurtful at times, you know, you say to yourself, my God, that, that's nasty what uh, they're trying to do to her. But uh, she's stronger than all of them. So it's, uh, it's very special. Cindy isn't the sort of person who focuses on herself. She's motivated by the children and families she's met. Yeah, well, it's an optimism. And I also think, well, what's the other choice? The other choice is to say, this is never going to change. And what is the message that sends to children and young people? That they're not worth the effort. 
And I thought, you know, I, I never knew all the, all this 15 years, what would happen with this. But the one message I wanted to show them through my behavior, not by making statements, is that I love them enough to stand with them and I'll never give up on them. For someone who has been fighting for so long for First Nations children, she is a relentlessly optimistic person as well. But she has also felt discouraged, especially with the length of time it has taken to get the government to act. What was really discouraging, I think, was the waiting. Seeing Canada fight this on technical grounds, on the jurisdiction, and seeing that the courts had to deal with that versus dealing with what to me was the essential matter, which is that these are young people and children in real time that are being told, no, you're not worth the money or you don't get that service because of who you are. But then I had to ask myself, what is, what is the answer to that? Um, do you just give up and get frustrated and get angry? And, or do you actually just use that as a fuel to press even harder? And, but to press in a way that brings dignity to those children and families. I've always tried to say, um, I want to try and conduct myself in a matter that brings them dignity. As for her goals, what Cindy wants most is for First Nations children to be able to be children, to dream, to run, to play. My goal is full culturally based equity. I am not interested in just uh, partial, partial equality. These kids deserve to dream about becoming an astronaut or an engineer or a carpenter or a uh, knowledge keeper or a teacher. Um, I don't want them to have to grow up and dream about a clean glass of water in this country. That is your Canada Land for the week. You can email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read all of the emails you send. We're on Twitter at Canada Land. Follow us there. Our website is canadaland.com. This episode was produced and reported by Danny Paradis. It's Danny's last piece for us as a Canada Land contributing editor. She's taken a reporting job with APTN. It has been wonderful working with Danny and publishing her work. We are sad to see her go, but we are so glad that she will be producing journalism full time with APTN. We will be following it and everybody else out there should too. Thank you for everything, Danny. Tristan Capicione is our audio editor and technical producer. Our senior producer is Sarah Larniuk. Kieran Oudshorn is our managing editor. I'm your host, Jesse Brown. Our theme music is by So Called. Our syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. Hi there. You just heard Canada Land, the show where I'm typically joined by a different guest each week for a long feature interview. What you're going to hear next is Canada Land Shortcuts, a topical news show where I'm joined by a different co-host each week and we talk about the media's coverage of various stories in the news right now. Wait for it. 
Sarah Larniuk, senior producer of Canada Land's Monday series, occasional war correspondent, and pursuer of a Master of Science degree in global energy and climate policy. Welcome to Shortcuts. Hi, Jonathan. This is maybe what it's like to sort of like when someone from Buffy shows up on Angel, or maybe it's like <laughs> when you visit a neighbor in your apartment building and look around the apartment and are like, yeah, this is pretty much the same as where I live, but like also kind of different. I'm a guest star <laughs> on Shortcuts here. I'm Jonathan Goldsby, filling in for Jesse. I don't know where he is right now. Maybe far away, maybe close by, and in any case, I'm the one right here. Today on the show, we'll be talking about the changing perceptions of the former partner of the Nova Scotia mass shooter as well as the heat wave in Europe and thwarting the apocalypse through journalism. Welcome to Shortcuts, where we talk shit about the news. This segment includes discussions and descriptions of domestic violence. The wife of the Nova Scotia mass shooter shares her story. Lisa Banfield was the longtime partner and common law spouse of the man who killed 22 people back in 2020. He put the bed to my head um, to scare me. And before it was over, some relatives of victims had stormed out. In the inquiry into the Nova Scotia mass shooting, Lisa Banfield took the stand this past week. And it's been interesting to see how it may have or appears to have shifted the public's perception and even the media perception of her role in all of this. Sarah, from what you can recall seeing or hearing up until this month, what was your understanding of how Lisa Banfield fit into all of this? I mean, I think I was probably particular in what content I chose to consume about her. There was a a really great front burner episode a few months ago that very much looked at how much guilt people should try to assign to someone who's injured domestic abuse. And I think that I've very consciously tried to consume content that that reflects that perspective. I have been pretty open about the fact that I've personally experienced coercive control in a relationship. And I just feel very strongly. Obviously, it was nothing, nothing like what she experienced. Mm. But I just really don't think people can judge the decisions that are made when you you. You cannot understand the psychological impact of financial abuse, of isolation from the people who love you, the physical abuse. You cannot downplay what that does to a person and what that means. To the extent I've been in, looked into the story at all, it was actually through mm-hmm. some of Candleland's own coverage. Mm-hmm. So just to give the context here, so when Gabriel Wortman killed 22 people on April 18th, 19th, 2020, his common law partner was not among them, obviously. Instead, as she told the RCMP, she was hiding out in the woods, having freed herself from his vehicle after being tied Mm -hmm. up there. And in certain quarters, doubt has been cast in this story. So, for example, author Paul Polango was on Canada Land's Monday show last year. You know, the whole reliance on Wortman's girlfriend's story that she came out of the woods at 6.30 in the morning in this improbable, hoary story. And she told them, he's in a police car and da-da-da-da-da. Well, why did they buy into that story? Why are they accepting that story? Why is she not talking? That's not explained by anything. He talked about, though, how her story was suspicious, right? Like, how did yes. she possibly survive in the woods? I've definitely heard those yeah. threads. Polango cast out on Banfield's account because an eyewitness had been dubious of it. 
But as time went on, the facts increasingly supported her story, and the skepticism increasingly appeared to have been unfounded. A couple pieces recently, one by uh, Tim Bousquet in the Halifax Examiner, what he described as the vilification of Lisa Banfield, he called it the, the witchification, and certainly it gets very good column in the Globe and Mail by Robin Urbach, the title saying, the spouse of the Nova Scotia shooter was another one of his victims, very effectively and pointedly saying that. Well, and in that piece, I think the need to try and vilify Lisa Banfield comes from this very human desire to have someone to blame. And in that piece, Robin Urbach makes the point of if she was dead, we we wouldn't be trying to blame her. And I think we have to look at what that means because I think that she's right. I think that Robin Urbach is right. I think we need someone who's alive to blame and Gabrielle Warman can't be that person. So people want to blame Lisa Banfield. And I think it's inappropriate, but I think we can also understand where it comes from. And so as Tim Bousquet put it in the Halifax Examiner, even quite bluntly, the intro is kind of florid, but it's, I'm sure it's accurate in the context of <laughs> the discussions in Nova Scotia. There's a campaign of lies, innuendo, misogyny, and hatred directed against Lisa Banfield. The goal apparently is to destroy her. And then further mm -hmm. down, I found this particular paragraph interesting. And yet, even as Banfield was testifying Friday, the campaign against her continued, especially on social media, but also in the pages of a particular local media outlet. Completely without evidence, the campaigners assisted that Banfield must have been complicit in the murders and was therefore lying during her testimony. There are some particular reasons why Banfield may have been regarded with suspicion. In late 2020, she was charged with having illegally provided the perpetrator with ammunition. Uh, that charge was withdrawn this past spring after she agreed to participate in a restorative justice program. No longer facing that charge, she was free to testify before the Mass Casualty Commission uh, without risk of self-incrimination. That's the inquiry into what happened and how police responded and how related issues of intimate partner violence and access to firearms figured in. Because of the commission's trauma-informed approach, uh, they turned down a request from the families of those killed to allow the family's own lawyer to cross-examine Banfield. Consequently, partway through Banfield's testimony, those family members actually walked out in protest. Another piece of this is that the RCMP in Nova Scotia, like the RCMP everywhere and like police more generally, have often been less than forthcoming when it comes to details, in this case details about exactly what unfolded over the 13 hours of the perpetrator's rampage, and in particular about what the police knew and when. And, you know, all that official caginess created a needless vacuum in which all kinds of theories flourished, some of which were built on shakier evidence than others. And you see this anger, not just anger directed toward, but culpability pinned on someone who by all appearances, was herself a victim. I think this mass shooting brought out the worst aspects of, you know, the human experience, like the need for blame, the want for anger and hatred to take over, and the need for suspicion. Also, like, I mean, we're dealing with the same things that we're dealing with in disinformation campaigns, where people love to feel like they know something no one else does. And when you can't trust official sources, it leaves a lot more room for that, too. Mm. Having come from the experience I did, it's informed the types of stories that I'm doing. We did the episode on the Monday show about the divorce system that looked at how broken the divorce system in Canada is and what 
exit strategies are actually available to people who are in her circumstance and that they aren't, in fact, answers at all in many cases. The most extreme example in that episode that we talked about was one where a divorce then led to a child dying. And I don't know how we sit around and blame someone for their actions when we also don't provide any avenues for exit for people who are experiencing domestic violence. The resources are there, but the roads are still nearly impossible. So support resources are available, but the roads to an exit are still nearly impossible. So I don't know where we get off blaming this woman for something that someone else did. I do think our coverage is improving when it comes to domestic violence. I mean, things like having a full podcast series done by Anna Maria Tremonti, Welcome to Paradise, that showed that this can happen to anyone, no matter how intelligent, how strong you are. People end up in circumstances that they never imagined without an escape, and their brain tells them to make decisions that don't make sense. In, in that, not to spoil the whole thing for anyone who's not heard it, but in that podcast, she talks about how her ex-husband said, if you don't leave, I'm going to kill you. And she came back. Okay, like this isn't a decision that another person can understand and look at critically and say like, oh, well, she must be insane or like she must have wanted it. No, she was abused and it very much changes psychology and we are getting better as an industry at covering it and understanding it. But the fact is that Lisa Banfield is now caught in the middle of it. And I'm really sorry for her. I am truly sorry that she is the person whose expense our learning is coming at as an industry. So, Sarah, on this program, we duly note things. Sarah, what would you like to note duly? You know, I want to duly note something that wasn't a headline at all. In fact, I came across it on my Instagram feed from my lovely friend, Katie May, who works at the Free Press and who's just like one of those wonderful, incredible reporters who just like plugs away and is incredible at her job. But what she posted on her Instagram was a sound clip from Someone Knows Something, Season 7, Episode 2, where host David Ridgen was just talking about his experience in investigating these murders that were committed against doctors who performed abortions. And his note was that... Unlike other police I've contacted, Winnipeg seems reluctant to help in any way on my endeavor, so I can't confirm what may have been done or said prior to Dr. Feynman's shooting. And I wanted to duly note this because it's just so unsurprising, because this is just absolutely run-of-the-mill, what we would call a pattern of behavior for the Winnipeg Police Service. Like, months ago, Katie was also reporting on a complaint that was filed to the Law Enforcement Review Agency, where a photojournalist at the Winnipeg Sun had complained after having all of his equipment confiscated by an officer, obviously. And so that all is going through the proceedings there. When I was on the CAJ board, we issued a statement indicting the uh, Winnipeg Police Service for the fact that they actually intervened when Winnipeg Free Press reporter Ryan Thorpe was trying to get video of an officer-involved incident. They confiscated the witness's phone. So, like, this is repeated behavior of Winnipeg police trying to get in the way of media doing their job. And I just 
wanted to note that duly because it has become such a way of being in this city that uh, it just seems like we should talk about it more. Duly noted. Searing, unrelenting heat. Europe baking and burning. A dangerous heat wave gripping a sizzling swath of the continent. The heart of England, today hotter than the Caribbean and Western Sahara. It is the first time in history that the UK has been under this kind of extreme heat warning. Flights were suspended when parts of the runway were reportedly softening. So, Sarah, what's the weather like in Winnipeg right now? You know what? It's been pretty hot, but it's all relative now, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in Toronto, as we record this on Wednesday, it's a high of 31. In Rome, it's supposed to be a high of 38. In Berlin, 37. Uh, in London, the, the good London, the UK one, it's back down to a pleasantly dreary 26. But yesterday it was 40. F 40, which has never happened before, and only seldom in recorded history has it come even remotely close. And they beat the last record by a full degree and a half. It's not oh, like, yeah. oh, uh, you know, a tenth of a degree here from three years ago, a full degree and a half. So, yeah, it's hot. Yeah, it's hot and it's gotten a lot hotter a lot more quickly. So I was curious to see the extent to which Canadian and UK papers have been drawing the connection between these extreme heat events and climate change. Mm -hmm. And particularly just looking, you know, in the, frankly, in the most superficial way, because I figure if you don't already know that there's this link, then uh, if it's not in a headline or a front page, it may not occur to you. And the fun thing about British newspapers is how many of them there are and how different they are from each other. You know, in the UK, the newspapers over the past four days are, well, you'd expect Britain burns in 40.3 degrees Celsius heat. Britain's burning, blowtorch Britain, uh, hottest day ever, meltdown Monday. They, they have a lot of fun with this. Uh, and not surprisingly, you know, The Guardian slash its weekend edition, The Observer, has done a really good job of clearly drawing a connection to climate change in its headlines. Mm -hmm. Wednesday's headline is a wake-up call. UK hits highest ever temperature the wake-up call in quotes. We're good at catastrophe as an industry. I would say that this has absolutely demonstrated how good the media is at covering uh, devastating events. Mm. If we're also good at covering, you know, the context of those devastating events in the context of climate change, it's another question. Oh, no, absolutely. And there's definitely a direct correlation between how not just the paper's political leanings, but how regularly and comprehensively they cover climate change outside of, you know, these mm -hmm. specific catastrophic consequences and, frankly, how they frame the catastrophes while they're happening. I wouldn't say that's exclusively what differentiates outlets, though, because a political yeah. leaning will absolutely change things. But so does just, like, investment in the coverage all the time, you know? Like, there's some outlets that have just come oh, yeah. leaps and bounds ahead of others, just globally um, and and locally. This isn't just, like, a UK thing, but... The one outlet that's obviously pushed the UK to do this better is The Guardian. They were the first to really start investing in, like, long-term climate coverage. And then, like, others have followed. Like, Bloomberg is knocking their climate coverage out of the park. And I think that was spurred both by, like, The Guardian, but also places like The Washington Post and The New York Times going all in on climate change. And we're not seeing the full spread investment the same way in Canadian media outlets, I don't think. Political leaning is one 
indicator. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, it's definitely like it is reflective of, of, of the larger investment in these stories. Mm-hmm. Like even the Globe and the Star yesterday, like Toronto Star, extreme heat grips Europe. Just even having the word climate at the top is like as matter of factly under a climate mm-hmm. heading. Or the Globe, extreme heat sears Britain. Scientists warn that scorching temperatures across continent could become the norm because of climate change. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a very low bar to Absolutely. You know, state the obvious and state the factual thing and to give a basic factual basis for, once again, this what's going on in the world. But it's not nothing. And it is, I will say at the very least, from my perspective, it is appreciated. But when, even if it's like not by itself going to do much. It is an incredibly low bar, but we also have to like remember how fast we've moved that bar up, which is encouraging. It's not fast enough, in my personal opinion. Oh. But, I mean, just years ago, we were still debating whether or not this was real, whether or not it was man-made. Like, this is all established, mm-hmm. and we've stopped debating it in the media, which I think for the most part, anyway. And now we are moving on to, like, okay, we've, we've heightened the bar. Now can we please connect these catastrophic events to climate change? It does seem that this heat wave... The global media is doing better at connecting it, but it also is a perception sometimes because you think when you see unprecedented in a headline, they, you know, make that connection. And a lot of the times, if you look, they actually don't. Last year, I actually did a full evaluation of Canadian media outlets. There was a couple international outlets that made it into the mix. Coverage of prairie drought fires and the heat wave last summer in BC. And so I evaluated digital online outlets and I found that even last summer, only 30 out of 100 articles even referenced climate change. So if we have this perception that we're doing better, even that low bar, historically speaking, very recent history would say that we're not really up to snuff yet. Yeah, I guess that is the question is like, certainly in my bubble, it's hard for me to imagine just having an extended conversation with anyone on a day-to-day basis who happens to not take for granted the link between climate change and more frequent and extreme weather events. Uh, And I imagine it's probably similar in your circles, but I could also imagine there are many parts of the country where might still be heresy to put that forward to suggest that where it might not get the same reaction. Well, I will say that, like, reporting from the prairies from Calgary and now from Winnipeg, it isn't a given that people accept that. It's more and more mm-hmm. accepted that climate change is happening and in the more reticent circles. Okay. They balk at the idea that it's man-made climate change, which is kind of the next hurdle to clear with the general public. Like, And that's why we do need to make these connections. It's like, yeah, okay, in our journalists bubble, maybe that is largely accepted. There are still segments of the population, an alarming Mm -hmm. number of people in the general population who don't understand and who still don't believe it. And if we don't put this forward factually, then what are we doing? One thing worth noting is that there's a difference in attribution. I find that in most articles, even in TV pieces, journalists will throw to an expert and let the expert say, This is absolutely a result of climate change. This is expected to be one of the hottest places in the world. Heat could hit up to 41 degrees by tomorrow. And uh, one expert told us that this is because of climate change and that the UK in particular, it's not ready for this. Not ready for 40 degrees heat as is forecast tomorrow. We we haven't experienced it before. The infrastructure is not set up for this sort of situation. Still, journalists don't feel comfortable enough stating that as a fact themselves. And I think that's kind of alarming in and of itself because 
the resources available to us now, if you just bother to look, are so wide and just can explain to you how much you can say factually, how far you can go and how far the connections can be made. And I just think that we're still lacking in that front. We just like, we need to get the expert. We need them to say it because we don't feel comfortable saying it. And we need to get comfortable with climate data. We need to get comfortable with the science. It's the same thing as the pandemic. No one was like asking a doctor to say COVID-19 was killing people. We just knew that it was killing people, right? So we need to get to the level of comfortability we started getting with pandemic coverage and climate coverage, and we're not there yet. The article is from last September. But uh, one of the most interesting things in there was something you noticed that Canadian Press had recently added to its mm -hmm. style book. Could you talk about that? Yeah. So they actually are asking, no, they are prescribing for journalists that, that these connections can be made and they can be made factually because there is a difficulty in attributing an individual event to climate change. You cannot say, okay, this heat wave was caused by climate change often. In this case of Europe, scientists have allowed us to do that. However, sometimes, you know, a storm happens. You can't say this is because of climate change. But what the CP style guide says is that you can go and say, okay, this storm occurred. This kind of storm is more likely to happen. The intensity of them is likely to increase over time because of a warming climate. And that level of confidence in our reporting, I don't see that. Mm, really? At least not regularly. There are, of course, standouts. Nicole Mortolero wrote an article with the headline, European heatwave isn't a surprise. It's a warning of what inaction could mean for our future. And this is the example of what we want to see in climate reporting. It gives you the basic facts of what's happening. It's not at the detriment of covering the current events, but it also gives you all of the context. It points you to the resources that people need to have. It points you to the UK Met Office. It points you to climate experts. It points you to how long this has been coming and how much of a surprise this isn't. It also points you to what I find is the most alarming gap in coverage, which is mortalities. Heat-related deaths is the easiest line to draw between human death and climate change, because causation is sometimes a difficult thing here. But they have very good tracking in the United Kingdom as far as how many people have died in heat waves, how many people are dying in this heat wave. And that seems to be missing. Like 40 degrees should not surprise us. It is happening faster than climate scientists were expecting, but still we always knew it was coming. And the UK is fascinating because they have some of the biggest climate minds in the world, right? And so they've had reports made by their civil service that have absolutely laid out a framework for how the UK should be responding, how the UK should be preparing for a warmer world. And yet a lot of those actions weren't taken. And so what I'm not seeing is any level of accountability coverage. I'm not really seeing any level of coverage of the deaths that are definitely happening beyond saying, oh, maybe a thousand people are dying. So if you look at the heat wave just from last year in the UK, they had three events 2,556 deaths were attributed to heat waves. Of the reported deaths, it's estimated that 95% of them are people 65 plus, most at risk in care homes. And I have yet to see cameras at care homes saying like people are dying here. It echoes much of what we saw in the pandemic where there's just holes in our coverage. It's like, oh, it's people in a splash pad. Like, no, that's actually not the problem. You know, people who have access to resources like that. 
are not the problem. It's people who are vulnerable. It's people in care homes. And in the UK, all of the scientific research shows that the UK care homes have not adapted to climate change, despite multiple calls from their civil service to do so. I imagine that everyone has internalized the fact that there is a direct connection between these things. Imagine mm -hmm. that it is fair to take for granted that well, everyone knows this is happening and this is why this is happening. And even potentially like what the effects of it are. If the role of media, you know, ideally is not just to document the apocalypse, but hopefully to avert it or mm -hmm. at least mitigate it if it's possible to mitigate an apocalypse. So what's next, I guess, is the question. It's not necessarily about mitigating the apocalypse. It's about doing what we have always done best. It's about accountability. What have governments known and what have they not acted on? Guess what? A lot. It's about speaking out for the most vulnerable. Who are the most impacted by this heat wave? Most of the reports will say that it's older people, but they haven't taken the extra step of going to care homes, looking at the fact that care homes have not adapted. This is stuff that journalism is set up to do. And then, I mean, beyond that, stretching far past this heat wave and into regular coverage, we have to incorporate it every single day. What are we not doing? What is new science revealing? What policies are or are not being implemented? They're everywhere. Like, I've reported on the climate beat for several years, and I don't even know where to start most days because the stories are everywhere, and they're not touched by very many people. And so the ability to just dig in and find low-hanging fruit is imaginable. Come join us. <laughs> That's Shortcuts for this week. Uh, thank you so much for joining me, Sarah. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. It's been a pleasure discussing, you know, the most deeply dark things that we can. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. I'm Jonathan Goldsby. You can email me if you so wish at Jonathan at CanadaLand.com. I think I know some of the answers. Where can people find you, Sarah? Well, easier to spell is Sarah at CanadaLand.com if you want to send me an email. But on Twitter, it is first name dot last name, Sarah Larnuke. And you can find me there if you want to as well. Oh, and I'm on Twitter at, at Goldsby. This episode is produced by Viva Lassard with additional production by Tristan Capacchione. Our managing editor is Karen Oudsorn. Theme music is by so-called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Find them online at cfuv.ca. Mm -hmm.